0: Hello and welcome to Cause High Viz, Cause Constructions podcast series. My name is David Hastie, lawyer with Cause Constructions Practice Group, and I'm joined by Cause Senior Associate Celeste Coravos, member of Cause's Japan B- Business Group, and Celeste also sits on the Committee of Management of the Australia Japanese Society of Victoria. And we're also joined by Jonathan McCoy in part two of today's podcast, who is a member of CAUSES China Business Group and CAUSES International Arbitration Group. Today we'll be taking a look at the crucial role Asia plays and will continue to play to Australia's construction market. And from a practitioner's perspective, crucial to this relationship is the awareness and cultural sensitivities that must be observed when doing business with our friends from Asia. In part one, we will take a look at Japanese cultural values, business etiquette and negotiation styles. And in part two, we will look at the Chinese high-level cultural values. Celeste and Jonathan, welcome.
1: Thanks, David. Thank you,
0: David. Celeste, I might start with you. Can you give us some context about the relevance of Asia to the Australian construction industry and give us a flavour of why Australian companies might be interested in learning about Asian business culture?
1: Sure. Well, the industry continues to be a popular choice for Asian investment, although the focus has shifted from mining more towards traditional construction, transport and renewables. And this isn't a surprise. Australia has optimal investment conditions. We have one of the fastest growing populations in the world, a AAA credit rating, steady unemployment and historically low interest rates.
0: That's obviously attractive factors for any sort of company looking to our shores, surely.
1: That's right. And the population growth in particular means that we have an infrastructure gap and there's plenty of room for Asian value add in terms of know-how, technology and capital. So we see a lot of potential here for Asian investors to make market-led proposals, providing innovative technological and infrastructure funding solutions. So,
0: So I might interrupt there. So what are our Asian clients telling us?
1: Well, we're hearing that they're hungry for information and introductions, so they want transparency around project opportunities, and they want the early invitations to join bidding consortia. And we've actually seen many examples of successful Australia-Asia collaborations over the last few years. And just recently, on 2nd of March, Kajima Constructions announced its purchase of a majority share in Cochrane Construction. so we'll be interested to see how that goes. Definitely.
0: Watch that space. So Celeste, we might start with Japan, because obviously you've got quite a background there and you've worked in Japan and speak fluent Japanese. Um, Feel free to converse with me in Japanese, (laughs) not that I'll be able to respond. But so in light of that background, let's talk about what Australian companies can do to increase their chances of successful partnerships with Asian companies.
1: Sure. And... um what, what I would say about Japan and what I'm sure Jonathan would say about China too is that today we're only providing generalisations and within each of those jurisdictions there's a broad spectrum of cultures. Uh, but in general what we can say about Japan is that it's borderline hierarchical. So. Foreigners might see Japan as being quite hierarchical, but really decision-making takes place at all layers within an organisation. There's no top person making a decision. So we see, for example, when Australian companies have been taken over by Japanese companies, there's a push towards change being initiated from the bottom up. Japan's also an uncertainty-avoiding country, and that's often attributed to the constant threat of natural disasters. As you might know, David, tsunami is a Japanese word, so... Um, I know that word. (laughs) As a result, everything in Japan is prescribed for maximum predictability. So in corporate Japan, we see things like focus on feasibility studies and working out risks long before a project starts. And we see rituals such as business cards and seating rules. Japan's also very long-term oriented. There's a high rate of investment in research and development, even in economically difficult times. And companies are generally there with a view to serve society for generations to come rather than to serve the shareholder in the immediate term.
0: That's interesting, isn't it? It's, it's quite different, I guess, to maybe what some of the Western expectations might be in, in those realms. That's right. So Celeste, I might turn to business etiquette because I always find that an intriguing one. Um, We know that Japan has, I guess, a very unique and historical business culture. Um, Can you let us know some of your, I don't know, your top tips for acting in accordance with appropriate etiquette and essentially not causing offence to our Asian friends?
1: Sure. If in doubt, I would say always be polite and formal. Um, that's really your starting point. But some of the more specific things are business cards. Um, People are always curious about Japanese business card exchange. Business cards are really seen as an extension of your body, an extension of yourself. So when you get a Japanese person's business card, don't write on it and don't just chuck it in your bag or your pocket. Always have a business card case with you. Uh, I really like the business card culture in Japan because it's a nice way to introduce yourself every single time you meet someone, no matter the context. Whereas in Australia, I think we tend to exchange business cards when we see a future prospect with a person or think that we might uh, get something out of the relationship. Well,
0: I suppose it's not even that, Celeste. It's It's almost a mere formality, isn't it? It's, here's mm-hmm. my card, I'll take yours, bang, straight in the suit pocket. Get down Never to business. To be seen again yeah. Yep. yeah. i <laughs> don't yeah. say that. Don't be so cynical.
1: Um, so, I might recommend to listeners to watch some YouTube clips on how to exchange business cards properly. But basically, you need to turn your business card around so that the recipient receives it the right way up for them to read it. You need to use two hands and always. Put your hands below those of the person you're exchanging with to show respect to them and when you receive the card spend a little bit of time studying it make some polite comments about it and as a general rule I wouldn't shake a Japanese person's hand unless they initiated first.
0: Very interesting. Um, I suppose there's, there's also etiquette around seating isn't there?
1: Yes so there are very extensive rules for seating based on hierarchy And they cover not only meetings, but restaurants, taxis, trains, even who operates the buttons in an elevator. Uh, A general rule is that the highest-ranking person in a room sits the furthest from the door or sits with a nice view looking out, for example, on a cityscape or a piece of art. And if in doubt, just wait to be shown to your seat. Don't sit just wherever.
0: Very interesting. And also, I note gifts and wrapping there's etiquette around that. Please explain.
1: That's right. So a classy Australian souvenir will be well received if you're meeting a Japanese expat in Australia or Japanese people in Japan. I'm intrigued. Yeah. Just,
0: just enlighten me. what What is a classy Australian souvenir? I'm picturing a, a koala or something like that. <laughs> Clearly not.
1: Uh, Koalas can be okay um, if it's in the right context. Generally, I'd start with something made in Australia and make sure it's high quality. So things like produce, wine and wooden articles go down well. I
0: was just thinking of a nice bottle of Big Barossa Shiraz that would probably impress, no doubt.
1: That's an excellent gift. But if you're going on a business trip to Japan, you might be limited in how many you can bring over, especially if you're meeting a lot of Japanese. So
0: You wouldn't want to disappoint then, I'm no, guessing. Really maybe, diss- maybe a few cases then.
1: That's right. Uh, and wrapping is just as important as the gift. So it's really useless to give a gift that's not well wrapped. Um, it won't be received as highly as it should be. Um, so spend the time getting quality gift wrap um, I've even been told by someone in Japan that their estimation of me increased because I had good quality gift wrapping, so it, it is important. Um, and one final thing I would add is appearance, so go formal and conservative in the Japanese business setting. For women, this means your makeup and nails should be natural, um, no bright colors. Although there seems to be a loophole for Japanese nail art, which is quite fun, Um, and for men, and I I might have some of our hipster listeners crying into their matcha lattes. Please make sure your facial hair is groomed, no overgrown beards, and no crazy socks like we might see in corporate Australia.
0: So then, a few of our uh, colleagues might be in a bit of trouble then (laughs) with with some of those socks. And don't know about. I think the facial hair uh, would get a tick, but the socks (laughs) might have to reassess. Um, that's, that's very interesting, Celeste. So I might move on. There's something, or I should say there's sometimes a perception that um, negotiating with the Japanese can be tricky um, because they are not as direct, say, as us Australians and um, are restricted in their ability to make on-the-spot decisions. So um, I might ask you perhaps, can you give us uh, some advice for successfully negotiating with a Japanese company and, and the employees of that particular company?
1: Well, the starting point is to be conscious that English is a Japanese person's second language, generally, and this will apply to many Asian cultures, and I'm sure um, Jonathan would agree. Um, so what you need to do is speak slowly and clearly, use simple words and expressions, don't use Australianisms, and be careful with jokes Uh, They're very common in Australian business culture, but they might get lost in translation. You should also provide written materials where possible, so an agenda is always appreciated, copies of any presentations that you make, pre- and post-meeting follow-up emails, and um, generally confirming things in writing uh, is an excellent practice because the written language is often easier to follow than spoken language. Interesting. You also need to be conscious of indirect cues during negotiation. So if you get a nod from a Japanese person, don't assume it means yes, it just means they're paying attention. And a smile might not mean acquiescence with what you're saying, it might simply mean that you're not understood. And keep in mind that a no will rarely be given by a Japanese person directly. They might say something like, that could be difficult or avoid responding to your proposition. So uh, don't expect a no, even if the intention is no. Um, And generally respond promptly to every communication, but know that you might not get a prompt response uh, in return.
0: Sure. Um, What about decision making, you know, considerations around that? Uh,
1: So Earlier we talked about Japan being borderline hierarchical in that decisions are made by the various layers in an organisation, so that's something to take into account in negotiations. Even minor decisions are rarely made on the spot at meetings. Decisions are made in a group, often using the ringi process. So Can you
0: describe this uh, ri- ringi? ringi process? Yeah. Excuse my sure. pronunciation.
1: So decisions usually need to be approved by a certain number of people and often this is done through a document that's circulated from the bottom of an organisation through to the top and this can take a very long time. So in a negotiation, make sure you don't have any surprises for your Japanese counterparty or last minute changes. Their decision-making process might not allow for, for last minute changes. And as a general rule, allow more time for negotiations than you might normally expect to cater for this process. So
0: is this commonplace?
1: Yeah, that's right. And I guess um, this can be a challenge when uh, we're looking at the construction industry because you've often got a tight tender timetable. So one thing we encourage our Japanese clients to do is develop governance principles that allow a degree of autonomy by Australian management to respond to local market conditions without needing head office approval. Uh, But I guess the the positive out of all of this is that your patience will pay off because a Japanese decision will always be strategic and make for the long term, which is exactly the sort of mindset you want in a construction project.
0: Fantastic, Celeste. Well, that's that's extremely comprehensive. Um, How about we finish on uh, some tips for our listeners? Uh, Maybe, let's be concise, three top tips. Sure.
1: Firstly, get your business cards right. So buy yourself a case, stock up on business cards and learn how to exchange them properly. Uh, I'd say also understand the complex decision-making process in Japanese companies. And finally, if in doubt, always go with a position of showing
0: respect. Fantastic, Celeste. Thank you very much for that. Thanks, David. My name is David Hasty. Thank you for listening. We look forward to you joining us for part two of our Doing Business with Asia series where we'll look at Chinese high-level cultural values. This podcast is for reference purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. You should always obtain legal advice about your specific circumstances.